0: Hello and welcome to a new year. Indeed. With the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm Nick Galetti and with me is Jared Riddick. Happy to be here as always. We have a new book that we're going to be starting. It's called Joseph and Moroni, The Seven Principles Moroni Taught Joseph Smith by Legrand L. Baker. Mm -hmm. And it's not a big book, so it'll only go for the next eight weeks, eight episodes, including this one. And uh, so this one, we have a couple different reasons why or how this book became the one that we are going to share. Jared, why don't you give us kind of your side on that?
1: Well, one, we we had permission from Legrand for his stuff very early on in Book of Central's life. Uh, actually, back in late 2015 when I was hired, he was one of the first authors that gave us permissions for his material. And so this book, as well as one or two other of his books, were uh, made available in the BMC archive really quickly. And uh, I like them. They're solid books. And it was a pleasure going over re-reviewing this book. Yeah. As preparing for this podcast, I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed parts of it.
0: Yeah. And I, I have a, a personal friendship with LeGrand and known him for a, a little bit of time. He was, um, I, I guess, to, to kind of peel back a little bit of the personal curtain here, he he wrote the back cover praise for my book, Tree of Sacrament. And he was actually also the one that... I didn't know that. He he put forward my manuscript with in front of people like Stephen Ricks and, and then Bob Millett ended up seeing it. And these scholars that reviewed it helped make it a better book, but it also gave the publisher cause to publish it because they they all had nice had things reviews, to say yeah. about it and things like that. So he was in my first documentary, uh, Legrand was, and my second documentary that I produced was based on his book, Murder of the Mormon Prophet. What was your first documentary? Picturing Joseph. Okay. It was uh, about all the images and concepts of the visual. I didn't know that was you. That's me. <laughs> but I was uh, I had spent some time... With LeGrand in Nauvoo, filming *Murder of the Mormon Prophet*, and got to know him even better as their time, you know, in traveling together and things like that. So he he became a mentor to me in, in writing, but he also became a co-writer and producer of these different works together. So I, I felt like a close friendship with him. And so one of the other reasons, again, that we're bringing this book to light now is that he passed away, mm-hmm. and we will be doing a tribute to him in the concluding chapter. Slash episode of this book, and uh, so we won't go over some of that now. But uh, he did pass away, and he was a—he's a good man—and wrote a lot of things, uh, defender of the gospel, and and had a strong testimony that uh, can be read on the Mormon Scholars Testify website. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get started. Um, we're going to start with the very short intro. And a this book and a is. Half, yeah, a page and a half is very big writing. I think it's probably best to couch this book and, and knowing that Legrand's intent was that this would be written for teenagers. Mm-hmm. And that I, I share that with caution because I don't want anybody who's not a teenager to think that there's nothing valuable or that it talks down to people. There's some very profound concepts in mm-hmm. this. There were some things that I needed to learn going through the book this time. It was very valuable. Yeah. And it was funny because I felt. I've read Joseph Smith's story, getting Mm -hmm. the plates and things like that before, but for some reason, the way LeGrand put it, it made you feel as if you were there. It was more immediate. Yeah. So anyway, this book isn't exactly organized in chapters, but rather the principles, the seven principles that Moroni taught Joseph. And obviously this isn't how Moroni couched it. This is his way of kind of organizing the things. Mm -hmm. But uh, so this first principle, one does not speak too openly about sacred things. Yes, which is an interesting principle, but uh, to take in mind, this book is it could be titled an instruction manual on how to be a prophet. And he makes that point in there. I think in I want to say it's in principle four. That is one of the places he sums it up. It's kind of subtext throughout the book, but definitely he comes right out and say that says that later.
1: I think is it in. Yeah. And in the introduction, he, talk, he talks about the verse uh, in Numbers eleven twenty nine. when Moses says, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon him,
0: Yeah, upon them. So he makes it very clear, and we'll go into this later as, as he kind of develops it throughout the book. But he does say that to be a prophet is very different than being a president of the church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he's talking about prophet with a little P, as some say it, that, that we're prophets in our own lives. And so these things that Moroni taught Joseph, is essentially what we need to learn in order to have the spirit more fully in our lives and so on. Um, unlike other books in the archive, this one's new. New-ish. Mm-hmm.
1: New-ish. We do, yeah, it's 2007 or 6. So. We, have a physical, the book. we have a physical copy here. I actually you can look
0: have at the physical copy and, uh 2007. 2007. I was Published graduating by high school that books. year. And uh, so we want to thank Eborn Books for giving us the permission. Mm-hmm. to put this out and uh, provide you guys with uh, an audio version of the book. Part of this first principle, and one does not speak too openly about sacred things, is trying to come to an understanding of prophets in general, mm-hmm. and and even historically how prophets have been viewed. And I, I know that it's, a lot of people view prophets as God's fax machine, mm-hmm. right? That they That they dictate for God, and that's what it is. And and this book helps to kind of reframe that a little bit. Yeah, he said a prophet is not a puppet. Yeah. A prophet and, is a prophet. Yeah, they, they, they have to process the revelation through their own filters and their own life and their own mm-hmm. talents and things like that. But uh, this, is, this is what makes this book unique and special, I think, because it may often sound presumptive for us to say we want to be like a prophet. We want mm-hmm. to be a prophet. That seems kind of weird language, I think, today
1: we have the image a white beard a robe and a man standing on a mountain with a rod that <laughs> that's, that's what a
0: prophet is that's right so this was this is an interesting version of history too because it's about uh, how he learned to become a prophet and uh, how joseph learned how to become a prophet but uh, one of the things that he goes into is the first visions mm-hmm. so awesome. this is one of the first parts and when i first read this years ago uh, where i really became interested in looking at the four different or the different versions that have been given the different accounts of the first vision was in this book. Actually. He gives us
1: uh, the four that we have from Joseph himself, I yes, believe. Yes, the first hand. So 30 1832, I can't remember all the 37, years. 37, 38 and 42, 42, yeah. Yeah. So
0: 34, uh, 35. He he remember. gives he gives the differences and all those things and well, we know that those accounts do differ. We we can give Joseph the benefit of the doubt that he had a good reason for giving the counts that he did to who he did and and there was good reason. For the slight differences that he he gave in each one of those. Uh, Steve Harper's got a terrific book yeah, absolutely. on that, yeah. Joseph Smith's First Vision. But he kind of contexts you know, with this principle of one does not speak too openly about sacred things, he gives some very interesting quotes about what we know from the First Vision and also what we don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You found a quote, if I remember, you kind of shared it before we started recording.
1: Let's see, uh, One cannot know the full story of the First Vision because Joseph chose not to tell it.
0: Yeah, that's, I like that. We don't often look at Joseph's first vision as in, in that light. In today's society, we seem to value transparency as the greatest value in, mm-hmm. in, in social currency. You know, a lot of people trying to expose this, WikiLeaks, and you know, transparency, transparency. But here we have this kind of almost countercultural message mm-hmm. that sacred things aren't to be treated so
1: profane. Yeah, shared so openly. Yeah. And Joseph learned that the hard way, as Legrand points out, that he goes and shares the experience right away and becomes the immediate subject of mockery. Yeah. From ministers, people around him, and such.
0: Yeah. We have some need to take a slight detour
1: mm-hmm.
0: and discuss the sources that were used throughout this book.
1: hmm
0: And again, this was written in 2007, but was conceptualized much earlier what are some of the things that you've noticed as you reviewed the sources that Legrand used for this book? Um,
1: he depends on some second- and third-hand sources of things Joseph saw. Some of the letters from Oliver Cowdery that were published in The Messenger and Advocate, for example. Um, things that we can't—sometimes Sometimes these letters are the only places we ever hear that. Right. want to be a little bit cautious about accepting that uncritically. Also, The History of Joseph Smith by his mother, which is a wonderful volume, but recent— um, scholarly work has shown that it may not have been purely composed by lucy Max smith but her neighbors in nauvoo may have had a, a large hand in it yeah setting and uh I, I will probably butcher it by trying to explain it fully but there was a, a terrific presenta- presentation by Sherilyn Halcroft at the mormon history association this past year about that and i believe there's also a chapter on it in the book mormonism's foundational text published by oxford university press uh, also by her covering that topic
0: i think the is it – there's some publication that BYU did where they did a review of a. want to say it's BYU Studies. Yeah, I'll, BYU I'll, Studies. I'll double check on like that. Like a revised version or something like that of the history? Yeah, there's I, a few
1: different ones out there. I know in the library here at Book of Woman Central, we have a couple of different versions of Okay. It. I know Levina Fielding Anderson did one. I believe she called it Lucy's Book, I want to say in 2003. I'm not sure there. Um, but there's been multiple editorial attempts to go over the book and contextualize things, et cetera.
0: Sure. And so we bring that up simply not to discredit Legrand or to add controversy to what he said, but to understand that he tells some stories in this that I haven't heard anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And And
1: the principles he illustrates by them are incredibly powerful. And I don't think you discount the principles he's teaching by that. Yeah. But just as a, make a, you know, reader and listener be aware. aware. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The, the closing paragraphs of the, not the chapter, but the principle uh really struck me. Um, and a couple of quotes I'll share here. He like said, the, the cost of knowing is that one does not tell unless the spirit says to tell. And that really hit me. There were there was times as a missionary, sometimes you're prone to over enthusiasm. Sure. Just putting it politely. Um but there was a time where we were taught to share the first vision and on on the street in, in contacts. And I never liked doing that. And it only lasted about a transfer, but it just didn't feel right to be sharing that with things in Las Vegas as they were and your surroundings. Um, but there's value in, in leaving sacred things and only sharing them when the spirit prompts. Yeah. And um, and he throws in a caution here. He said, implicitly, if we insist on talking out of turn and persist in doing so, our hearts will be hardened to the sacredness of the truth. When that happens, we abdicate our right to know, and then we forget. And that was powerful. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's just a, a good caution to us to not cast pearls before swine.
0: Well, and I think that, that we, we live in a social media world where it seems like people say things on a whim. Mm-hmm. And we don't often take the time to understand that if this is God's work and his words, we treat sh- it that way. He should be the one to give us permission as to when we share those things. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, let's just say that this this book can call us to repentance mm-hmm. even if that's, you know, it's not so directly meant to do that. There are times where we can find those principles apply in our own lives very yeah. much.
1: When I read what I was sitting over this reviewing it last night, getting my notes together, that kind of rocked me back on my socks a little bit and like, "Oh, <laughs> I'm a storyteller." People who know me know that. I like to tell stories and sometimes I there's times I should have kept my mouth closed. And that was a that was yeah, it was a call to repentance
0: for me. We we all have those stories, but yeah. So here we go. Here's now a reading of the introduction and principle one of Joseph and Moroni by Legrand Baker. Joseph and Moroni, The Seven Principles Moroni Taught Joseph Smith by Legrand L. Baker, published by Eborn Books. Introduction and First Principle Joseph and Moroni This is the true story of how an angel taught a boy to be a prophet. As a testimony of Joseph Smith, the story is important. But it is important for reasons that reach far beyond that. Moses once observed, Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses did not say, Would God that all the Lord's priesthood holders should be prophets. He said that all the Lord's people... That has always been the desire of the Lord's servants. It was the overshadowing intent of all that Joseph sought to accomplish. It is not about everyone's seeking to become the president of the church. That is a special kind of prophet with specific priesthood authority. It is about what Moses said that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, that every person in the church could conduct his or her life according to one's personal revelations from heaven. The object of this little book is to examine the principles taught by Moroni to Joseph. Moroni's task was to teach Joseph how to become the prophet he was foreordained to be. The book addresses the question, what must one do to be that kind of prophet? The principles are as universal as they are eternal. They are as applicable to girls as to boys, and they are as applicable to every man and every woman as they were then applicable to the young prophet Joseph. As any great teacher would, Moroni used Joseph's experiences to teach him those principles. The seven principles Moroni taught Joseph are as follows First principle One does not speak too openly about sacred things. Second principle One must learn how to recognize the feeling that identifies the Holy Ghost. Third principle Integrity is keeping one's covenants with God. Fourth principle Sometimes prophets must make their own decisions. Fifth principle Friendships, however important, are not as important as keeping God's commandments. Sixth principle, the Lord has already planned for His children's success. Seventh principle, the Lord provides whatever help He understands we need. First principle, one does not speak too openly about sacred things. An Extraordinary Friendship Joseph Smith's relationship with Moroni was not that of a docile young man and an angel without a personality. Moroni was a prophet and a general who had watched his people destroy themselves because they would not obey the Lord. Joseph was an intelligent, strong-willed teenager who liked to do things his way. So there were times when there were conflicts. It might have been easier if the angel had broken and trained Joseph the way one might break and train a spirited young horse. But if Joseph were to be trusted with the powers of priesthood, he must also be trusted to exercise those powers in the full strength of his own personality. A prophet obeys God. If he does not obey, he is not a prophet. But if he is not free to disobey, he is only a puppet. A prophet and a puppet are not the same thing. A prophet obeys because he chooses to obey. Joseph would be successful only to the degree that the enormous potential he brought with him into this world was allowed to fully develop. Joseph had to be taught to be obedient, without taking away his sense of individual worth, without warping his strong personality, and without violating the law of his own being. In short, he was to be taught how to obey, but he was not to be broken. The extraordinary friendship that developed between the angel and the boy was molded by their mutual respect and then forged and tempered by Joseph's need to keep his balance, to not be overwhelmed by it all. On the one hand, Joseph walked with angels and knew their purposes. On the other, he was only a boy struggling to become a man. Moroni was patient, but would not be diverted from his objectives, to prepare Joseph to receive the plates of the Book of Mormon, to teach him how to translate them, and ultimately to teach him how to be a prophet. The angel's studied patience suggests he was working on this principle. Just as one cannot be tempted beyond one's ability to withstand, so it is true that one cannot be given spiritual experiences and insights more quickly than one is willing and able to assimilate them. The First Vision Joseph was no weakling. He was a tall, athletic, self-assured, good-looking lad who enjoyed physical labor and vigorous play. He worked on his father's farm and earned some money by hiring himself out to work for neighbors. One of those neighbors was Martin Harris, a well-to-do farmer who recalled that after hoeing corn all day, Joseph liked to relax by wrestling. Martin's report that he and Joseph often wrestled with each other shows that there was a pleasant and easy friendship between them. Joseph had very little formal schooling, but his learning was adequate for the time. His father had been a schoolteacher, and the family frequently read together. The Bible was the best-selling book on the New England frontier, and the Smiths, like their neighbors, read the Bible. Joseph did not read as much as other members of his family. He spent more time thinking, given to meditation and deep study, is the way his mother described him. Joseph was only 14 years old when he became the focal point of one of the most important events of human history. There are four versions of his first vision that can be attributed directly to him. The most important is the one in the Pearl of Great Price, but the others are interesting also. The following are excerpts from all four of them. But, exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, and at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong, and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, and the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. He again forbade me to join any of them, and many other things did he say unto me which I cannot write at this time. Another version reads, I retired to a secret place in a grove and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded. And I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. A third version reads, A pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me, and I was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Lord opened the heavens upon me. And I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. Behold, the world lieth in sin at this time, and none doeth good, no, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel, and kept not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And mine anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them, according to this ungodliness, and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. Behold, and lo, I come quickly, as it is written of me in the cloud, clothed in the glory of my Father, and my soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy, and the Lord was with me, but I could find none that would believe the heavenly vision. The final version reads, Information was what I most desired at this time, and with a fixed determination to obtain it, I called on the Lord for the first time in the place above stated, or in other words, I made a fruitless attempt to pray. My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me like someone walking towards me. I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprang upon my feet and looked around, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. I kneeled again. My mouth was opened and my tongue loosed. I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head which presently rested down upon me, and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared like unto the first. He said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I saw many angels in this vision. I was about fourteen years old when I received this first communication. While Joseph's accounts of the first vision redefine the traditional concept of God, he actually wrote very little about what he saw or about what he was told. One cannot know the full story of the first vision because Joseph chose not to tell it. His accounts contain enough detail that one may know the events immediately preceding it and know its conclusion that no church had the true gospel and that it would be Joseph's responsibility to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. However, concerning the particulars of the vision itself, Joseph preserved a reverent silence. There are many accounts in the scriptures of visions in which prophets of old were told about their own foreign and calls to serve. In some accounts, the prophets mention angels gathered in a heavenly temple, singing praises to their God. Joseph's, I saw many angels, may be a reference to that kind of experience. One wonders how much, like the visions recorded by the ancient prophets, Joseph's might have been. And a comparison is interesting. It would be a mistake to try and superimpose their accounts of their visions on young Joseph's first vision. However, the following comparison is relevant, if to do nothing more than teach about the modest and unpretentious personality of Joseph Smith. Joseph wrote, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. Through Joseph's words, one senses an encompassing serenity in that hovering, blazing pillar. But for Ezekiel, it was like a tornado. I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Joseph did not share Ezekiel's need to express the dramatic. It was more in keeping with his personality and perhaps with his culture to content himself with just being sure that his record was correct and understandable. On another occasion, the young prophet described a cloud of light in connection with the visit of John the Baptist, again conveying a sense of peace more than of wonder. For him, all that needed to be said was that a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light. Joseph's account of his first vision never takes his readers from the rural setting in which he was most comfortable, and that homespun elegance never loses its sense of reverence. I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, and when the light rested upon me I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. Isaiah, on the other hand, transports one to the heavenly temple, where he saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Lehi not only told his family about God's throne, but also about the angels who were there. He was carried away in a vision, even that he saw the heavens open, and he thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising their God. There are other characteristics that appear in many, but not all, of the accounts of a prophet's call. Like Lehi's, the call often takes place during a meeting. The location, when specified, is in the throne room of the celestial temple. Members of the council in heaven are in attendance, singing hymns of joy to God. At these meetings, several things occur. A. Earth life and the plan of salvation are discussed. B. There is a vote taken or a covenant made by which those present express their assent to the proposed plan. C. Specific assignments in terms of earth times, places, and objectives. Are made to individual prophets and to those who are foreordained to assist them. D. In conjunction with those assignments, ordinances and ordinations are performed. In these visions, the prophets see their own foreordinations. They are shown that in the heavenly councils they were given assignments that included the authority to speak for God. When the prophets describe these foreordinations to their readers, they use different symbols. For Jeremiah, that moment was when the Lord put forth his hand and touched Jeremiah's mouth, saying, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations. John the Beloved describes his receiving the authority to speak for God by writing that he was given a little book to eat. That book was symbolic of both his foreordination and his mission. Lehi also was given a book, but he was asked to read it. In it, he learned of the destruction of Jerusalem and of his responsibility to warn the people. For Isaiah, that symbol was a burning light. One of the seraphim took a live coal from the altar of the temple and placed it on Isaiah's lips to purge his iniquity, apparently giving him authority and power to speak the Lord's words to Israel. Ezekiel spends about a page explaining the responsibilities of the call he received at that time. Nephi takes a little less space to tell about his father's call. Jeremiah uses 19 chapters to describe his and alludes to it often thereafter. The candor of Isaiah's reaction to his call is delightful. Isaiah was shown a meeting in the temple in the premortal existence. In the vision, probably while watching himself participate in a discussion about a dangerous situation that was going to develop on the earth in about 750 BC, he heard... As he had heard eons before, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah saw his own response, Here am I, send me. The Lord reviewed what Isaiah's assignment would be. After a little consideration on Isaiah's part, that assignment looked a bit heavy, and he asked, Lord, how long? The Lord gave a straightforward but not very comforting reply, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. Oh, I just thought I would ask. One can almost hear Isaiah sigh to himself. There is nothing like that in Joseph's story. For him it was sufficient to report that he was told not to join any church, and then to add, with a note of solemn self-understanding, and many other things did he say unto me which I cannot write at this time. Joseph learns not to talk too openly about sacred things. When young Joseph left the grove that day, he must have felt as though all the world lay at his feet. One can feel the memory of his self-assurance in his own report of the conversation between him and his mother. He wrote, As I leaned up to the fireplace, mother inquired what the matter was. I replied, Never mind, all is well. I am well enough off. Almost anyone who has ever reared a 14-year-old boy need only look to the surface of one's own imagination to discover the twinkle in Joseph's eye, the suggestive rise of the eyebrow, and the knowing smile when he added, I have learned for myself that Presbyterianism is not true. Joseph's account of his own response to his first vision brings one quickly back to the realization that notwithstanding the vision's magnitude and overwhelming importance, its recipient was still a boy, a vulnerable, tender young boy. After the first vision, his soul was filled with love, and he soon interpreted that feeling as a need to tell others what had happened. But he was surprised and disappointed to discover that many of his friends reacted by mocking him rather than believing his story. I soon found, however, that my telling the story had excited a great deal of prejudice against me and was the cause of great persecution. I was led to say in my heart, Why persecute me for telling the truth? In his enthusiasm to share the great truths he had learned, Joseph was introduced to an eternal principle that he, like most of us, had to learn the hard way. The cost of knowing is that one does not tell unless the Spirit says to tell. It is beyond the scope of human ability to teach the mysteries of godliness. Only the Spirit can do that. If our words will help, we are instructed to talk. Otherwise, we violate a sacred trust when we impose unwanted truth upon those who are not prepared to listen. One does not trifle with sacred things and discuss them as interesting bits for idle conversation. Alma explained that even though it is given to many to know the mysteries of God, those many do not have license to tell whomever they choose. Implicitly, if we insist on talking out of turn and persist in doing so, our hearts will be hardened to the sacredness of the truth. When that happens, we abdicate our right to know, and then we forget. Alma says that not knowing the mysteries of God is called the chains of hell. Well before he met Moroni, Joseph learned by unhappy experience this most important lesson. Telling about a sacred experience must be as precious as having the experience. Otherwise, one does not tell at all. Moroni would reinforce that principle when he explained that Joseph must show the plates to no one until he had permission to do so. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rare Possessions Podcast. Please tune in next week for the next principle in the book Joseph and Moroni by Legrand L. Baker. For more information on this and other items in the Book of Mormon Central archives, visit archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.